Hello Spain lovers and a warm welcome to the When in Spain show. I'm your host Paul Birch. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to be talking books, books about Spain specifically. Well, where else? This is a show all about Spain. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of days ago, actually during Madrid's San Isidro Feria. And they reminded me that coming up at the end of May for two weeks, going into June, uh, is Madrid's Feria del Libro, uh, Madrid's book fair, book festival, really. Uh, it's quite a big deal. It happens every year and it takes place right in the middle of uh, the Retiro Park, uh, where publishers set up hundreds and hundreds of stalls selling books. So it's been going for 78 years, which I was quite surprised to learn. Um, and if you love green spaces and parks and being outside and you love books, well, it's a, a marriage made in heaven. So for any listeners who are new to Madrid or if anyone is passing through Madrid for the first two weeks of June and you're book lovers, check out Madrid's Feria del Libro. Anyway, in this episode, I'm not going to talk about the Feria del Libro, but it got me thinking about uh, books about Spain that I've read over the years uh, that have given me a useful insight into the country, the culture, the people, society, food, drink, and that kind of thing. So I scooped off my bookshelf here in my living room in Madrid, a good selection of books that I've read about Spain. And I thought what I'd do for this episode is put together a kind of when in Spain, I don't know, Spain 101 reading list. And these might be some of the books that would feature on that list. For some of you who've been listening to the podcast for quite a long time, you may remember I did do uh, an episode about books when I visited a bookshop in Madrid called Despot literature. And in that episode, I looked at more unusual, lesser known books about Spain with the bookshop's owner. In this episode, I would say the books that I'm going to guide us through are probably more well known. In, in fact, if you are already a big fan of Spain, you may well have heard of several of these. So that's what's coming up in this episode, books about Spain. I'm going to describe them, give you my thoughts and impressions about them, recommendations. And if there's time, I might read a couple of small excerpts. But before we get into uh, the When in Spain reading list, uh, I've got some important announcements to make. First off, I would like to give a special shout out to When in Spain listeners, Chris Arellano, Sarah Litt, Stephanie Edwards and Dawn Hopkins. A huge, huge thank you to you guys for being the first patrons of When in Spain. And uh, thank you for being so kind as to sign up to make a regular donation to When in Spain through the Patreon website. Uh, no, seriously, I'm really, really touched. Uh, it's just been my first week on Patreon, really. But seriously, I'm really, really grateful for your generosity. Um, it really means a lot to me that you think that the When in Spain uh, podcast and associated online bits and pieces are, are really valuable to you and that you actually are willing to pay a small uh, monthly donation for them. I'm really touched and I'm really chuffed. So to Chris, Sarah, Stephanie and Dawn, muchísimas, muchísimas gracias. De verdad. So for those of you who are thinking, what the hell is Paul on about? What is uh, What are When in Spain patrons? Uh, why are people making donations? Uh, what is Patreon? Um, I was sitting down last week and I was thinking about When in Spain and 
And it dawned on me really that I've been putting together this podcast now for almost a year. Next month, when in Spain, will be one year old already. Uh, madre mía, como huele el tiempo. How time flies. I can't believe it. It's been a fantastic journey for me. Uh, it's It's been a steep learning curve as well, but it's been hugely rewarding to bring you guys, the listeners, uh, my take on living in Spain, some hopefully useful information and insights, recommendations. And it's been fantastic to get your feedback more than anything and to actually be in contact uh, with you, the listeners, that really keep me moving forward with the podcast and keep me motivated. Uh, some of you I've been lucky enough to meet in person as you've uh, happened to be passing through Madrid. So yes, it's been a year and I'm really excited for another year of When in Spain. But I want to make it better and I want to bring you the listeners and the supporters, well, more value, frankly, more content, better content, more regular content. I want to get more guests on the show. I would like to try and get more high profile guests on the show who can talk about Spain. I'd like to be able to take you to more places and uh, bring you more insights and advice as always. As I'm sure many of you have guessed uh, at the moment when in Spain is what I would call a passion project really for me it's something that I work on during my my free time uh, alongside my full-time job teaching Um, but in the next 12 months I'd really love to devote even more time to the podcast as I've said I'd like to find other ways to bring you flavors of Spain I'd like to spend more time generating video content uh, for the YouTube channel and I'd like to spend more time creating original content to share on the Facebook group as well Uh, having said that another thing that I'm sure you're uh, well aware of is that producing content on a on a regular basis is incredibly time-consuming and unfortunately doesn't come free. It does come with quite a few associated costs, um, which during the last year I have been paying out of my own pocket, which is fine because I love bringing you the show. So what I'm saying is, is that if you think When in Spain has some kind of value to you, you enjoy listening to it, uh, you find it informative, if you find it entertaining or insightful, or if it acts as some kind of portal to transport you from wherever you're listening from right here to Spain, then please consider showing your appreciation for the content that I produce by making a small donation, as the four first patrons have already done, as I just mentioned. The idea is that I use these small monthly donations, as I said, to cover my costs um, because I have to pay subscription costs to things like the podcast hosting service, which means I can get all of the audio I record syndicated out to all the places so that you guys can download it. And also maybe in the future, I'd like to scale down uh, the amount of hours I spend teaching and dedicate more hours to when in Spain. So if you think you could maybe spare just $1 a month, $2 a month, $3 a a month, five, ten, whatever you think, uh, in your opinion, when in Spain is worth to you, then you can do this now via a website called Patreon. What is Patreon? Well, basically, it's a crowdfunding website. Uh, it's long established. It's been going for about five years now. I think it has something like three million users. And it's a place where people can show uh, their gratitude and appreciation for content creators like me by signing up to make regular small monthly donations. And podcasters use it, YouTubers, musicians, artists, bloggers. So if you genuinely do feel 
feel that you're able to spare uh, a small amount each month and that you feel when in Spain is 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 worth it, uh, you can head across to the patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. It's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash when in Spain. And when you hit the page, it's really obvious. There are, I think, five or six different tiers that you can pledge your donation to. Uh, the most basic one is uh, a $1 tier on a sliding scale right up to $20 if you are a mega fan, which uh, one of the patrons has donated. So I'm really, really, um, well, over the moon about that. That said, however, if you don't feel that it's appropriate to, to make a donation or you feel that you're not in a position to do so, absolutely no problem at all. No problem at all. The main thing for me is that people continue to listen to the show and give feedback and, and connect via the Facebook group so that we can keep generating more and more, more, and more buzz around the show and make it much more uh, a two-way conversation between me and you guys, the listeners. But yes, if you'd like to help secure the long-term future uh, of When in Spain, don't forget that just for as little as, I know, half a cup of coffee a month, just a dollar, however small the donation might be, it all adds up and it does make a huge difference. So muchísimas gracias. And I will stop uh, shamelessly self-promoting now. Let's get into uh, Books on Spain. I think uh, on the reading list that I'm going to run through, there are about 13 books. Some I'll go into a bit more detail than others, otherwise this is going to end up being a two-hour episode or something like that. Uh, just to say that all of the books are very accessible, they're fairly easy reads, um, there's nothing super uh, academic or heavy, they're all uh, enjoyable, fairly light reads on Spain I would say. Uh, some of the books I had read before moving to Spain and some of them I've read since living here and for the ones I've read since living here it's been quite interesting comparing uh, their insights with the reality of living in Spain full time. Uh, we've got a mixture of books about travel, culture, society, some books about uh, the history of Spain, food and drink, uh, a real good mix of a bit of everything. So first on the When in Spain reading list, well, an absolute classic. I mean, it's kind of like the Bible for anyone who's interested in uh, the history of Spain uh, and uh, how the history of Spain uh, influences uh, Spanish culture today. Yep, it is the Bible, Ghosts of Spain, Travels Through a Country's Hidden Past. And the author is Giles Tremlett. And it's published by Faber and Faber. I think pretty much anyone I've met who's moved to Spain from a different country and certainly who is a, a, an English speaker always wheels out this book as, oh yeah, you must read this book. Yeah, it's an absolute classic. And it's true. It's a really useful insight and a very accessible insight into Spain's history by Giles Tremlett. Giles Tremlett is a journalist and he is the Guardian newspaper's Madrid correspondent. Having said that, I'm not sure if he still is, but he certainly was for a very long time. He still lives in Madrid. Um, he's been here, I think, for well over 20 years. And it's a really invaluable book. It was first published in 2006, but it has been updated since then. So it now covers 
uh, up until the 2011 elections. So it's already getting on a little bit, I suppose. I still keep thinking that 2011 was only like, you know, two years ago, but um, it's uh, eight years ago. Having said that, um, it's still very relevant. Uh, The blurb on the back of the book says... Spaniards are reputed to be amongst Europe's most forthright people. So why have they kept silent about the terrors of their civil war and the rule of General Franco? This apparent pact of forgetting inspired writer Giles Tremlett to embark on a journey around Spain and its history. He found the ghosts of Spain everywhere, almost always arguing. Who caused the civil war? Why do Basque terrorists kill? Why do Catalans hate Madrid? Did the Islamist bombers who killed 190 people in 2004 dream of a return to Spain's Moorish past? Tremlett's curiosity led him down some strange and colourful byroads and brought him unexpected insights into the Spanish character. It comprises 13 chapters where Tremlett examined in some of the political fault lines that run through the country. Uh, He starts off the book examining the uh, Franco regime and its aftermath. He looks at how political parties interpret the past and reflect on uh, their current political interpretations of modern Spain. And he takes a reader across the country from Madrid to Bilbao, Barcelona, Galicia. And along the way, he examines things like flamenco, Basque and Catalan separatism, Spanish art, cinema, political corruption, gender relations, prostitution, tourism. And he tries to sort of pin down what it is to be Spanish and try to pin down what Spain really is as an entity, as a, well, a constantly changing and very regionalist country, I suppose. I found it a really enjoyable read. You can certainly tell that he's a journalist. It's written in a in a fairly journalistic style. You can kind of see how he's maybe adapted articles he's written to fit into the book. And I would say it starts off, it's fairly meaty. But I would say my only critique would be maybe that as, as the chapters pass by, it becomes maybe a bit less and less penetrating and a little bit superficial. And maybe he does fall back on a few generalizations it depends on on your own point of view of your own experience of spain i guess the other thing i might say is that it does i guess because he's a he's traditionally been a print journalist he's used to writing shorter form journalism shorter articles and in for that reason sometimes it feels a little bit disconnected Uh, One of my favourite chapters is one called How the Bikini Saved Spain, and he looks at how tourism has changed the face of Spain for better or for worse. And here's a little excerpt of him talking about, well, Benidorm. A few miles north from Alicante, a thin, mysterious, pole-like structure began to emerge over some distant hills. As the kilometres ticked by, it remained virtually unchanged in size. I realised that I must be looking at something a long way off in the distance. Eventually, the pole began to thicken, and cresting one of the hills along this bumpy coastline, I finally realised I was reaching what the Moors called Beni Darhim, the son or followers of Darhim. The gradually broadening shape ahead of me was Spain's tallest building, the Gran Hotel Bali. It stood like a proud raised finger on the edge of a place whose current name is not only easily recognised, but has become a modern legend of its own, for this finally was Benidorm. If anywhere in Spain symbolises the country's latest invasion, this is it. A fresh invading horde, sun hat and sandal wearing northern European tourists has rampaged its way along the coast over the past 40 years. He goes on to say Benidorm attracted relatively few visitors 
at the beginning. In 1950, there were four or five small fondas or pensiones and hotels for the odd commercial traveller or for families from Madrid or Barcelona who came to spend the summer. A handful of holiday villas belonged to wealthy families from Valencia, Alcoy and Madrid. We didn't call it turismo back then. We called it veraneo, summering. We got the word tourism later from the Swiss. The man who was mayor in the 1950s, Pedro Zaragoza Orts, told me when I visited him on his 81st birthday in Benidorm. So there you go, Giles Tremlett's Ghosts of Spain. If you want a good general overview, which is, which is a fairly easy read with lots of interesting facts and stats, I strongly recommend it. In a similar vein... Another book called The New Spaniards by another journalist, another correspondent, another British correspondent in Madrid uh, called John Hooper, uh, published by Penguin. It tracks the history of Spain. It gives a really interesting insight into society. I would say that The New Spaniards, which I think when it was first published was just called The Spaniards, uh, and it has been updated uh, uh, since um, this was published, uh, it's a bit older than Ghosts of Spain. This was published first of all, wow, in 1986, but has been updated as far as 2006. Uh, I'd say it's a bit heavier, maybe a little bit more meaty. What he does is he breaks the book down into different parts. So part one is the making of a new Spain. And he looks at things like obviously the dictatorship, the Frank Fra Francoist Spain. Part two is called Private Domains, where he looks at the church and the church's influence on society. Uh, then he looks at people's attitudes to sex, uh, gay marriages, and he compares that with, obviously, the Frank Francoist uh, prudery, as he calls it. Uh, he looks at relationships with men and women, machismo, family values. Part three is called King and Country. So he looks at the, the, the uh, evolution of the monarchy in Spain. Uh, he looks at the state, tax, red tape. Uh, part four is called Official State. Uh, so he looks at the regionalism. He looks at the Basques, Catalans and Galicians and the idea of autonom uh, autonomy and uh, auto autonomous regions in Spain. Part five is called A Changing Society. So he talks about gypsies and gitanos. He talks about the welfare state, uh, education, housing, and law and disorder. For me, this chapter was this uh, this chapter was particularly useful and interesting. Really about the changing society. And um, part six is called New Perspectives. And in this one, he looks at the the press and the evolution of the press and media, TV and radio. He looks at uh, art and uh, the artistic revolution in Spain. And he looks at uh, changing traditions and uh, looks at flamenco and bullfighting to see uh, the current state of play with those very, very famous Spanish traditions. If you read those two together in combination, uh, it would give you a really good and detailed insight into Spain's history and society. The next two books I'm going to talk about uh, together are what I would call historical accounts of Spain. And the first one, an absolute classic, which I'm pretty sure almost all of you have heard of, is Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. Uh, I think this is definitely a book that is inflicted on most uh, students who are studying Spanish or Spanish history at some point. For those of you who may not know what it's about, well, it's, it's George Orwell's uh, personal account of the Spanish Civil War. 
1936, Orwell travelled to Spain to report on the Civil War, uh, but ended up joining the fight against the fascists. And uh, yeah, this is his uh, very famous uh, war account through his own experiences. And the book is famous for its, uh, I don't know, disillusioned account of how the Communist Party, uh, with its eagerness to defeat Franco, actually betrayed the successful anarchist experiment in Catalonia and how it, 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 it executed, imprisoned its anarchist and socialist comrades for the sake of a temporary alliance with the bourgeois. Uh, it's a very gritty account. I think that's why a lot of people like it. It's a very gritty account of war. And some people criticize it as being a, a, a too personal uh, an account and seen from uh, Orwell's very limited and narrow point of view. Um, so some people argue that, you know, in terms of actually learning anything historically significant about the Spanish Civil War, that it maybe is not the best material. But I think one thing that it made me realise, and I've always thought that the history uh, behind uh, the Spanish Civil War is incredibly complicated and incredibly confusing, or it can be, and really, uh, homage to Catalonia, really con- just confirmed that for me it's uh, surprisingly readable i would say um for me living in madrid i find it particularly interesting um because uh yeah the accounts of the uh, republic's assaults on the uh, phalangists and the descriptions of madrid during the conflict are, are pretty uh, grim and make for pretty appalling uh, reading so it's not particularly light in that respect, but as I said, it is uh, very readable. And I think really to get some kind of understanding of the Spanish Civil War, it's, uh, it's really a must read. Now the next uh, historical account of Spain, which I really love, I really love this book. Uh, again, it's very well known. Anyone who's interested in uh, uh, observations on Spain from a long time ago, Gerald Brennan's South from Granada, uh, published by Penguin. It was first published in 1957, but it's actually Brennan's account of uh, living in a very small Andalusian village called Yegan in the uh, Albujarras region of Andalusia. Uh, Brennan moved to uh, this small remote village, uh, Yegan, and lived there on and off really between 1920 and 1934. And during his time there, he depicts uh, really, it's a really vivid and very evocative account, I suppose, of the ruralness of Spain in uh, pre-Civil War years, uh, the Andalusian, really kind of peasant way of life in that part of Spain uh, during those years. And he he really vividly describes the landscapes, the festivals, the kind of folklore uh, in the Sierra Nevada, village customs, uh, superstitions, local characters. It's a very detailed account and he was a fantastic observer and document his descriptive powers are absolutely fantastic he really gives the idea of the remoteness and the uh, sense of somewhere where modern life had not yet reached and his observations are really acute um, kind of affectionate but he's not overly sentimental and I would say it, it feels almost like a kind of anthropological work really the imagery really um, captures the, the look the smell um, you know just kind of imagine like the gestures of mountain shepherds and gypsies and village children cave dwellers animals politics love affairs prostitution 
everyday uh, life in a small Andalusian village in the 1920s. So Gerald Brennan, south from Granada, an Englishman that had recently been demobilized from uh, the army and had very little money, um, but took with him to Yegan 2,000 books. And that was his plan to go and uh, find a peaceful enclave to read all of the classics. I'll just uh, give you a little quote. Washed by the ocean of air, cut off by the precipices and the height, the village hugged its life to itself. Even its noises were muffled. No dogs barked, no children screamed, no harsh metallic conversations could be heard, or loud raucous croakings such as grate on the ear of foreigners in Spanish cities. The speaking tone was soft, and if anyone shouted, if a cock crowed or a donkey brayed or a hawker cried his wares, the sound was at once sucked up into the silence. This gave the place an air of peace, rough, simple, primitive, rich only in crops and fruit trees, but distilling in its customs many centuries of history, Yegan seemed to be full of echoes of the Golden Age. Another historical account, uh, non-fiction, uh, an absolute classic again. Uh, a, it's a short book, small read, uh, and it's simply called Spain uh, by Jan Morris. Uh, According to the independent newspaper, the most evocative book ever written about Spain. Uh, published back in 1964, so it's fairly uh, long in the tooth now. Blurb says, uh, passionate, evocative and beautifully written, Spain is a companion to the country, its people, its history and its character. And the little and the little excerpt from the book says, Spain is one of the absolutes. Nothing is more compelling than the drama at once dark and dazzling of that theatre over the hills, the vast splendour of the Spanish landscape, the intensity of Spain's pride and misery, the adventurous glory of a history that set its seal upon half the world. A short read, about 150 pages. Um, I would say this is a kind of one-stop quick read about Spain. And probably no other book about Spain can offer such an insight uh, with such uh, brevity, really, um, which gives it all the more intensity. A good mix of history, landscape, architecture, uh, religion, anecdotes, uh, really nicely woven together. She certainly manages to capture, really, the essence of Spain and the kind of ebb and flow of Spanish history over the centuries. OK, the next book's uh, a little bit lighter. Uh, very enjoyable and um, very well known. And I'm sure many of you have heard of Chris Stewart and his debut uh, account of living in Spain called Driving Over Lemons, an optimist in Andalusia. He went on to write a few more. So there are three which kind of work as a trilogy. As I say, the first one called Driving Over Lemons. The second one is called the Almond Blossom Appreciation Society. And the third one in the trilogy, The Last Days of the Bus Club. Now, these are really just nice, enjoyable, easy reads. Uh, Chris Stewart uh, moves to Spain and he buys a dilapidated farmhouse and, and land with it uh, with really very little idea of what, what the hell he's doing. Um, but it's... Um so it's really the story of an Englishman's escape into rural Spain um, and, you know, and his sort of hapless day-to-day uh, -day life. 
I mean, this is uh, really easygoing, pure escapism. Uh, the blurb says, meet Chris Stewart, an eternal optimist, a man who flies to Spain, sees a peasant farm on the wrong side of the river with scarcely a second thought, hands over a cash deposit, and then finds he has acquired not just the farm, but the farmer too, who has no intention of leaving, not to mention the lack of running water, electricity, or even a bridge. It would be enough to send most people straight back home. But Chris and his wife, Anna, are made of stronger stuff. And besides, they have sunk all their savings into the farm El Balero and buying a flock of sheep. So there is no turning back. Life gets tough, but it also gets good. It's just quite charming and witty and funny. It's very lighthearted. It's not heavy. I suppose you could say it falls into that kind of, uh, you know, expat fiction uh, bracket. Um, but I really enjoyed it. As I said, there are three in the trilogy. I think he's written more since. And it just trades is their travails of, uh, you know, foreigner moving into rural Spain and how they uh, build relationships with the locals, how they overcome the difficulties of managing the landscape, uh, the language, all of these kinds of things. Um, these were written, I think, back in the 1990s now, so they've been around a long time. In a similar vein, I wonder if any of you have heard of the author Jason Webster. Jason Webster, again, was, well, an American-born, but then grew up in England and uh, moved to Spain in the 80s. His first book, which is a, an account of his search really to find out the origins of flamenco and learn uh, how to play Spanish guitar and flamenco music. Uh, the book is called Duende, Duende. So it's his search for Duende. What is Duende? And it's a, it's a, it's an entertaining account of how he moves to Spain. He moves around various different cities. He has an affair and subsequently falls in love with a married Spanish uh, woman called Lola, uh, who's a flamenco dancer. And, uh, um, well, he kind of gets involved in the Gitano lifestyle says here, joining their dislocated cocaine-fueled world, stealing cars by night and sleeping away the days in tawdry rooms, he finds himself spiralling self-destructively downwards. It is only when he arrives in Granada, bruised and battered after two years, total immersion in the flamenco lifestyle, that he is able to put his obsession into context. Uh, yeah, really interesting account of, I suppose, Spain and uh, particularly Madrid in the 1980s, how he befriends uh, gitanos, how he convinces them to accept him into their uh, very closed group and how he learns to play flamenco guitar. Entertaining read. He's also, he's written many books, but these are the only two that I've actually read. The other one is, that he wrote which I think was, was his second book, is called Andalus, Unlocking the Secrets of Moorish Spain. And the blurb here says, Jason Webster embarks on a quest to discover Spain's hidden Moorish legacy and lift the lid on a country once forged by both Muslims and Christians. He meets Zain, a young illegal immigrant from Morocco, a 21st century Moor, lured over with the promise of a job but exploited as a slave labourer on a fruit farm. Jason's life is threatened as he investigates the agricultural gulag and Zain rescues him and the unlikely pair of writer and Desperado take off on a roller coaster ride through Andalusia. Uh, while Jason unveils the neglected Arab 
ancestry of modern Spain, apparent in its food, language, people and culture, Zayn sets out on his own parallel quest, a one-man peace mission to resolve Muslim-Christian tensions by proving irresistible to Spanish señoritas. So there you go. Again, a nice, light, uh, easy read, entertaining, but also, you know, manages to weave in aspects of, well, uh, certainly the Moorish history of Spain, but in modern day Spain, uh, looking at how North Africans are trying to integrate into the Spanish way of life with limited success and uh, looking at uh, how they are exploited, especially in southern Spain, in the kind of fruit picking industry. So that's Jason Webster. Uh, Both of those are published by Black Swan. Now, for any of you who are interested at some point in uh, walking El Camino de Santiago to Santiago de Compostela, this is something that I really would love to do in the future. Um, I hope I get the chance to do it. I found uh, a lovely little book by uh, by a writer called uh, René Freund called The Road to Santiago, Walking the Way of St. James. And this is a a lovely account, really like a a diary. Uh, Each page is like a a, a diary entry, which tracks uh, René's walk of El Camino de Santiago during uh, the three months uh, that he takes to to walk the pilgrim route. Along the way, he he shares his experience of really, I suppose, reaching his physical and psychological limits during um, the spiritual journey. It's very detailed, very descriptive. He talks about uh, the kind of roller coaster of emotions, the fatigue that sets in, the weather, the little pensiones that he stops off at along the way, and the people he meets along the way as well, and the kind of bonds that are built the bonds that are made between fellow walkers uh, along the uh, road to Santiago. So it's a really enjoyable read, and especially if you're interested in in the future, maybe actually doing it for yourself, it gives a really good insight into the kind of uh, toil that's involved, and indeed the beauty uh, as well, and uh, and uh, and it's a really nice account of how uh, he manages to switch off and do some soul-searching and find him, finding himself and all of that kind of thing. It says here, Every year, thousands of people make the pilgrimage to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Spain, honouring a centuries-old Christian tradition by walking the way of St. James. The road to Santiago is one man's incredible story of walking almost a thousand miles to experience it for himself, introducing us to the overwhelming natural beauty encountered along the way as he reaches the edge of the European continent, thought to be the end of the world by pilgrims of former times. He learns that the old pilgrim's saying is true. The journey does not end in Santiago. There it begins. That's published by Armchair Traveller, and it was written, when did he publish it? Uh, It was published in English in 2006. It was originally published in German in 1999 because, indeed, René Freund is German. Now, uh, the next couple of books I would like to talk about are food. If you love Spanish food and you're a bit of a foodie, as I certainly am, I'm going to talk about two books uh, which give a kind of culinary history and a culinary insight into Spain. And then I'm going to share with you my recommendation for a fantastic Spanish cookbook. Uh, with great Spanish recipes. So first of all, let's start off with a book called A Late Dinner, Discovering the Food of Spain, A Late Dinner. This is by uh, Paul Richardson. 
<laughs> this is a lovely read. If you love Spain and you love food, it's a kind of book you just don't want it to end. Uh, nice and light, really interesting. Looks at uh, the history of Spanish food, avoids all of the cliches of paella and gazpacho, um, and how uh, Paul Richardson does it as he goes on a journey around Spain, I guess, obviously. And he looks at coast, land and city. And then within those categories, he looks at uh, specific places as well and looks at the traditions of food in those places. It's described as a vivid and humorous journey. Richardson takes us past the cliches to tell us the real story of Spain's mouth-watering fruit, from typical coastline cuisine to the shepherd cooking of the mountains and the chic urban food of Madrid and Barcelona. Along the way, he gets caught up in a fish auction and the annual pig slaughter and spends a day at El Bouilly restaurant and makes a never-ending stream of new friends. Nice and light, but a really nice account of uh, Spanish food and quite humorous as well. So that's uh, A Late Dinner uh, by Paul Richardson and that is published by Bloomsbury. Another foodie book uh, which I like, a kind of culinary tour also is called Tasting Spain. Uh, Tasting Spain by H.M. Van den Brink and H.M. Van den Brink is a, a journalist uh, I believe from Holland or the Netherlands, I think. Uh, it's translated into English. And it's his account of meals that stick in his mind. He was a correspondent based in, in Spain. Um, and uh, he talks about very specific meals that, uh, that have stuck in his mind uh, uh, around various parts of Spain. And uh, a little excerpt, it says, This is not a cookbook. It's a book about eating, about meals I have eaten in Spain alone or in company, and about my memories of them. These memories were my sole guide while writing. Any meal that was still vivid to me after all these years must have been something special. A cook, a historian, or a restaurant critic would follow a less idiosyncratic policy and write a more balanced and practical book about Spanish cuisine. But I'm not a cook, nor a historian, nor a critic. I'm just an eater. So yeah, a nice uh, nice leisurely read again. It says, uh, whether it's in Madrid's cafes or Barcelona's fish markets, tasting and smelling are the key occupations of Van den Brink's culinary journey through Spain. You will see the shop windows of Madrid displaying the famous Serrano ham or typical Spanish sweet cakes. You will taste crispy pig's ears and rich chickpea soups. You will smell the strong coffee and tortilla of an al fresco breakfast. With historical background alongside memory, and associations, Van den Brink gives a personal yet lively description of Spain, its culture and traditions both in the city and the countryside, with a focus on enjoying various traditional Spanish dishes in both exquisite restaurants and more commonplace settings. Tasting Spain will leave you wanting to try Van den Brink's recipes for yourself. Uh, throughout the book, uh, between the chapters interspersed, are um, his version of Spanish recipes. In fact, I just noticed here I've got one page with the corner turned over uh, for a recipe for cofido madrileño the chickpea soup or stew from madrid so a nice little book with a few of his uh, recipes that he uh, picked up on his travels tasting spain so the recipe book i was going to re recommend to you 
has been a long-standing cookbook uh, that you will find in pretty much every Spanish kitchen in Spain. Uh, in Spanish, it's called Mil Ochenta Recetas de Cocina, uh, 1,080 uh, Kitchen Recipes. But it's been translated into English, and in English it's just called Spain the Cookbook by Simone and Ines Ortega, which I believe are mother and daughter. And a fantastic cookbook. How I would describe it is it's like the classic Spanish, like, grandmother's cookbook that every household has. Um, I've been to lots of uh, Spanish homes and every kitchen seems to have uh, a copy of this book. Well, at least a Spanish version. So if you, want, if you speak really good Spanish or you want to practice your Spanish, I'd suggest getting the uh, Spanish version. The English version, which I've got, is a really hefty tome. It's quite heavy and cumbersome because it's been, uh, for the English version, it's been illustrated. Uh, published by uh, Faden, and it says uh, here, considered the foremost authority on Spanish cooking, Simone Ortega, together with her daughter Ines, guides the reader through 1,080 authentic recipes that cover everything from tapas and paella to crema catalana and churros. It says this cookbook is a practical countertop guide and a precious keepsake for home cooks and professional chefs who wish to master the venerable art of Spanish cuisine. It's a lovely book, as you can imagine, 1080 recipes. It covers just about everything and uh, anything that you, any classic Spanish uh, uh, recipes, you will find it here. Seafood, meat, um, I mean, everything. There's no point in me reading off a list. Um, and it also uh, gives uh, little recommendations on specific implements and kitchen devices. And it also sort of, uh, not just recipes, but sort of it uh, teaches you how to make specific parts of recipes. So it's like tells you how to make, uh, tells you how to make so uh, specific sauces and things like that. And in the back of the book, uh, it has menus from celebrated Spanish chefs. And so it's a list of Spanish chefs and uh, their most famous uh, recipes from their restaurants as well. At least that's in the English edition. I got a feeling that that might not be in the original Spanish version. So there you go. Spain the cookbook or uh, 1080 recetas de cocina. So two more just to round off. So staying with the theme of food, slightly tenuously, um, a book called The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Now, this is what kind of caught my attention because I am a huge, huge, huge cheese fan. I love cheese. Um, it says here, in the fall of 1991, while working at a gourmet deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Michael Paterniti encountered a piece of cheese, not just any cheese. This was Paramo de Guzman, a rare Spanish queso reputed to be the finest and most expensive cheese in the world. The cheese carried its own legend, made from an ancient family recipe in the medieval Castilian village of Guzman, population 80. The cheese was submerged in olive oil and aged in a cave where it gained magical qualities. If you ate it, some said you might recover long-lost memories. Too broke to actually by the cheese, Pataniti made a quixotic vow that he would meet this cheese again some day. Flash forward ten years when Pataniti has finally found his way 
family in tow to that tiny hilltop village to meet the famous cheesemaker himself, a voluble, magnetic, heartbroken genius named Ambrosio. What Pataniti discovers in Guzman is nothing like the idyllic, slow food fable he has imagined. Instead, he wanders into and eventually becomes deeply implicated in the heart of an unfolding mystery in which a village begins to spill its long-held secrets and nothing is quite what it seems. And what he learned uh, is that the cheesemaker had apparently plotted uh, to murder his closest friend. It's a nice little read. It's quite beguiling. It's a little bit unfocused, um, I would say, sometimes. And it seems to be more of a sort of series of anecdotes or stories uh, loosely connected um, by this kind of this idea of this, this central idea of a mystery. And so it can be a little bit waffly. It's not a bad book, though. And the premise, discovering the best cheese in the entire world. Um, but nonetheless, the story is, uh, is quite charming. The characters are uh, quite well fleshed out. And uh, you can imagine if you met the cheesemaker, you would know him immediately. And that uh, might sort of uh, pull you into the telling room story a bit more. Um, but there you go. Uh, cheese and passion and revenge and uh, village, <laughs> village secrets in the telling room. Uh, last one then. I don't know if this might be maybe a bit more uh, interesting to uh, Brits uh, than other nationalities. It's called Footprints in Spain, British Lives in a Foreign Land by Simon Courtauld. So this is about uh, the various British, well-known British people who've uh, gone and moved and lived or had some influence in Spain in some way over the various centuries. Uh, it says Britons have been drawn to Spain for centuries, from the Pyrenees to Gibraltar and La Coruña to Murcia. The Iberian Peninsula has played host to many momentous events that have shaped the culture, history and psyche of both nations. Over time, Spain has made its mark on some of Britain's best-loved thinkers, writers and royals, from Catherine of Lancaster to Laurie Lee and Benjamin Disraeli to George Orwell. The book tells the story of great British lives in Spain over the years. In doing so, it vividly charts the tumultuous history of Spain, its people and its British visitors, touching on everything from monarchy to tauromachy. Don Carlos to Don Quixote, writing with warmth, colour and a keen eye for an anecdote. Uh, the book gets to the heart of Spanish life and sheds new light on this eternally captivating country. An interesting read, I think, if you have some kind of background knowledge of well-known Brits. And uh, it's broken down by chapters and each chapter is a visit to a different city and the kind of British influence on, on one of those cities. John of Gaunt, George Orwell, Lord Byron, uh, Charles I, Francis Partridge, the Duke of Wellington, Benjamin Disraeli, um, all of these people that spent time in Spain, um, but we might not necessarily know that uh, there was a well-known connection with them and Spain. Um, but it talks about how Spain has touched them all in some kind of way, and also uh, reciprocally how they left their mark on Spain I think it's more interesting, really, if you're specifically interested in uh, the famous Brits uh, that it talks about. Um, but nonetheless, Footprints in Spain, British Lives in a Foreign Land by Simon Courtauld, uh, published by Quartet. And that's the last one. Now, I'm well aware that there are many, many, many more books about Spain that I haven't mentioned um, because I haven't read them myself, basically. Uh, 
For example, I've never read um, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning by Laurie Lee, um, which is about him deciding to walk to Spain, playing his uh, violin along the way to make a little bit of money and how he uh, eventually ended up uh, uh, fighting in the Civil War. If any of um, any of you guys, the listeners, have read it and want to give a little bit of feedback about it, or indeed any other books about Spain which you think are accessible, uh, that uh, have a broad interest to anyone who's interested in Spain, Spanish culture, uh, history, society, any of the things that I've touched upon in the books that I've mentioned, in the Facebook group, please feel free to share, to share your Spanish book recommendations, because I'm sure there are dozens and dozens of more books about Spain. What I've bought you really are some of the most uh, well-known books about Spain um, that you're going to be able to find fairly easily in any bookshop, I would imagine, certainly on Amazon. Just a quick note to say, don't forget that uh, When in Spain has a presence on all of the usual social media hangouts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the YouTube channel as well. And now, if you'd like to make a very kind small donation via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. If you think you'd like to make a small donation, uh, as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, uh, you can do that there. And as always, don't forget, you can get in touch with me directly by email. The uh, address you need is whenInSpain1 at Outlook.com. WhenInSpain1 at Outlook.com. And I will uh, uh, endeavour to get back to you. Any queries or questions you have, or indeed, if you're coming to Madrid and you'd like to meet up for a caña or a coffee, send me an email. Uh, thanks again to the uh, new Patreon supporters. So we've got four supporters at the moment. Could we make it ten supporters by the end of next week? Maybe. Just a quick note before I go. Um, I've got lots of interviews uh, lined up for uh, upcoming episodes. So we're going to be looking at Spanish wine. I'm going to be looking at uh, going for tapas in Spain, how you do it, what a tapas is, how to order. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, working in Spain, what it's like to work in Spain. Does the kind of old uh, system of who you know and connections or El Enchufe, as it's called, still exist. I'll be making an episode about the Spanish press and media. I'll be heading along to a flamenco class and uh, talking about uh, the history of flamenco, how people learn it, and all of the very specific vocabulary that goes with it. And I'll also be speaking to a well-known blogger who blogs about Andalusia, and I'll be putting together an episode with her about must-see sites in Andalusia if you're coming to Spain to visit or if you've never been to the region and you live here. Uh, we'll be putting together little itineraries and also looking at off-the-beaten-track places as well as looking at how is Andalusia different to the rest of Spain? We'll look at the culture and food and the Andalusian identity. So those things coming up in future episodes very soon, plus a lot, lot more. So I'll leave it there for this episode. Muchas gracias y hasta luego. Hasta luego.